Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Good to see your smiling faces and your smiling faces online as well. Uh, anybody else battling allergies like crazy this week? Can I see a show of hands? It's hard to see with this light. Okay, a number of you. Well, I'm, I'm all drugged up this morning, so that could be a good thing or not a good thing. You'll find out. If my voice starts squeaking, I'm not going through puberty or anything, so it's all good. So <clears throat> we're starting, <clears throat> here we go, a brand new series of messages called Marriage, for better or for worse. And what we're going to do is we're going to examine closely four couples in the Old Testament. And we're going to see how, for better or for worse, their marriages could speak into our lives and perhaps empower our marriages to be better. All right? And I want to begin this way. I need some audience participation. You guys all in for this? Can I I get an amen? Okay, good. All right, I need you to be honest. We're all adults here. Like, we can do this. All right? Let me start with the ladies. Women. How many of you, and be honest, how many of you from the time we were, you were a little girl, maybe it was preteen, maybe it was your teenage years, but you dream, dream, dream about having the marriage, the perfect wedding, the perfect marriage, maybe named your kids by the time you were like 16, something like that, but you were dreaming about that like crazy. Can I just see a showing of hands? Come on, ladies, get them up high. Come on, come on, come on. All right, men, how many of you, when you were a young adult and you looked forward to getting married one day, you dreamed of being intimate with your wife twice a day and three times on Sunday? Can I see your gentleman's hands? Yep, all right. Yep. <laughs> Got through that one. Okay, so men and women, show of hands, how many of you are really just dreaming still today, actually? So, yeah, that's what I thought. For all of you online, hands are going up everywhere, Okay. All right, the reality is, when it comes to romantic love, our culture is very confused, isn't it? I mean, we teach our young girls from from a very early age, you know, one day, if you play your cards right, you're going to meet the one. Like, your Prince Charming is going to come along, sweep you off your feet, and things are going to be perfect from that moment forward. You will get the house with the white picket fence and the dog and the 2.5 children, and you will live happily ever after. But the reality is there is no happily ever after in so, so many marriages. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a very unusual story in this book right here. Okay, it is very odd uh, if you get into it. It's kind of got some weird twists and turns, and we're not going to be able to go deeply into all of it. But it concerns a couple, actually three people who have this deal going. And there's a guy named Jacob, and if you know the story, he meets this beautiful girl, Rachel, and immediately he's like, i got to have her. But then her older sister gets involved through a weird series of events, and they don't live happily ever after. And let me just give you the context here. Jacob travels to a well, and at this well, he sees his uncle Laban's daughter, Rachel, and she is just drop-dead gorgeous. And so immediately, probably because of the appearance, he falls in love with her. Now, for those of you who are doing the math in your head, this is his uncle's daughter, which would make her his what? Yeah, they're all from the deep backwoods here, I guess. So so he sees and he falls for his cousin. And he's likely thinking, man, if I can just marry this girl, then my life will finally have meaning. 
Now, we know enough about the whole story that we can kind of put the puzzle pieces together here. Jacob, you may know, he never really had the love of his father, Isaac. And for those of you who didn't have the love of your father or your father was distant or absent, you you know what that does in your life. It creates an emptiness, a kind of longing inside of you. We also know that Jacob had lost the love of his mother, so you can imagine how that compounded what was going on inside. And then at this point in his life, we know that Jacob didn't really grasp the unconditional love of God. So it's no wonder when he sees this beautiful woman, he's thinking, man, maybe this is the one. She can be the one that can fill this emptiness that I feel so deeply inside of me. And in our world today, that happens all the time, doesn't it? You know, maybe you were the girl or you knew the girl who always felt inadequate and empty unless she had a boyfriend. Like if there wasn't a boyfriend by her side, something was wrong. Or or the guy that's always got to have the smoking hot girl so his buddies will be impressed. Oh, man, you always get the girl. You're so cool. He's like, heck, yeah, I am. And, you know, but he's got to have that girl because without her, he just doesn't quite feel like he is who he should be. Or it could be the middle-aged guy who has a faithful wife and kids, and for all those years it was good, but then he gets bored with his job. He doesn't feel as handsome anymore. You know, his hair is falling out, his gut's sticking out, whatever. And, and so he trades in his faithful wife for a younger girl who's really nothing more than a commodity to make him feel powerful and desirable again. And he's thinking to himself, if I could just have this girl, oh, then things will work out. She'll fill that emptiness inside of me. That is likely what's going on with Jacob here. Let's pick up the story in Genesis 29, verses 16 to 17. It says, now Laban, good old Uncle Laban, had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Okay, can I just speak frankly with you this morning? Most Hebrew scholars, they're going to argue that this was just a polite way of saying that Leah was not very attractive, okay? I'm serious. It's not referring to her vision. They don't mean like, well, Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel, man, 20-20 vision. She had strong eyes. (laughs) Scholars debate this. They say, well, maybe it was a disfiguration with her eyes or her face in general. But, But the literal meaning here is she's just not super attractive, But Rachel, they went on to say, was lovely in form and beautiful. Now, in the Hebrew, lovely in form can be translated like this, okay? (laughs) I'm serious, okay? Lovely in form in the original Hebrew language, that was talking about her physical. It means she was a hottie, okay? She had a smoking hot bod. It was referring to the physical appearance. Lovely in form and beautiful. And just to confirm this, I actually did a little study in the original Hebrew in detail And uh, I reconstructed most likely, based on the original language, what these two women look like for you. So so Leah, the older, less attractive one, probably looks something like this, okay? (laughs) Just so you know. And then the younger, uh, beautiful one, you know, Rachel, probably most likely looks something along the lines of this, okay? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, come come on, give her a, she's back there. For those of you who don't know, that is my smoking hot bride right there, who is lovely in every way. Yeah, I'm no idiot, right? I just got some major brownie points, which I will redeem as soon as humanly possible, but that's a different story. Okay, I'm totally messing with you, but but here's what I do want to say, okay? I I do want to say this. First of all, please, 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 please hear me on this. I am not dismissing the importance of physical attraction. 
I mean, I believe the way God created us to be attracted to our spouse, that is a good, good thing. But you got to admit, in our world today, it is way, way, way overvalued. In our over-sexualized, over-externally driven culture, the external gets elevated to the highest point, and that's just wrong. And it's dangerous. In fact, as you get into this story, the story clearly implies that the older, less attractive woman was actually the better person of the two. But in our world today, it's all about how do they look? What do they look like on the outside? In reality, if you carefully study this story, that's all Jacob saw. That's all. He sees her. She's hot. He wants her. He's going to say he's in love with her after spending just a month at her father's house. Okay, we know in the culture that day, they didn't really allow kids to get together, spend time with each other. He didn't really know her, yet he's claiming to be in love with her. He's attracted to her, and that's about it. Not entirely unimportant, but not everything, people. Not everything. <laughs> yeah, I heard a pastor recently who was sharing a story about a young gal in his church, and she was just so excited. She had the engagement ring on. She runs up to the pastor, oh, look, 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 look. He's like, oh, I'm so happy for you. Tell, tell me about this guy. And she launches with this. She said, well, he's got these gorgeous eyes. They're big. They're blue. I just melt into his eyes. He's like, okay, all right. Tell, tell me a little bit more. Well, he, he's so handsome and he's successful. And he's like, all right, all right. Tell me, tell me about his spiritual story, like his Jesus story. She goes, well, you know, he doesn't really like to talk about that stuff. But his eyes, right? Pastor's going, oof, red flags. I said, you know, you've been a Christian the whole time I've known you. Oh, yeah, yeah, I love, love Jesus. And he goes, well, well, you're all pumped up about his eyes and his career, but don't you think this spiritual incompatible, that could be a problem? She's like, no, no, no. Once we get married, that will all work out. All right. They said, well, do you want to have kids? Oh, yeah, yeah, lots of kids. Oh, we haven't talked about that, but I would like to have lots of kids. And on and on it went. The pastor's just thinking, you've got to be kidding me, girl. You're going to go out and build a marriage on the external only? I'm telling you, it happens all the time. And that is likely what's going on with Jacob here. He's thinking, if I can just get this girl, my life is empty, but she's going to fill that void. It'll finally have meaning. And I want to submit to you today that for so many people, this premise that marriage is the answer, if I just get married, that may be keeping you from what God wants you to experience in life. In fact, there are three big problems that happen when you believe wrongly that marriage is the answer. If you're looking at your notes, the first one is this. When you believe marriage is the answer, you know what you do? You compromise more than you should. You give up things that are important to you or you give up things that are important to God in pursuit of that one person who will satisfy you. Look at verse 18. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for how long? Say it with me. Seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, now some of you might be thinking, well, that, that's really offensive. It kind of is, but in the culture of that day, you got to understand, a man would purchase his bride with money, livestock, or work. And I know some ladies look at this and go, well, well, that's pretty romantic then. I mean, he offers to work for seven years. In some ways, it is romantic. But in other ways, it's just insane. Because his very first offer, you may not realize this, his very first offer here is three and a half times the norm in that culture. I mean, a good negotiating guy would start low, try to get her faster, but he's like, seven years. And basically, if you read between the lines here, you've got a guy who's desperate, who's saying, I'll do anything for her. I'll do anything. I'll give up more than I should. And boy, that's what happens all the time with people in our culture today. You know, the sweet young girl who says, you know what? I'm going to save myself. I'm going to save my body till the day I'm married. But then she meets a cute guy and 
She thinks she wants to marry him, and he's pushing her sexually, and she's like, well, I'd rather not. But, but if I give him my body, then maybe he'll give me his heart. So she compromises. Or a girl who's dating a real jerk, doesn't treat her very well, but she's been taught, you know, I got to get married. My biological clock is ticking. I'm almost 30. All my friends are married. I know he doesn't treat me that great, but, but maybe once we get married, things will change. So she compromises. Or maybe you've got a lady who's very spiritual, but the guy's not that spiritual. And he's like, come on, let's do this. And she's like, no, 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 you got to come to church with me first. And so the guy goes to church, but not for the right reasons. And then she ends up compromising because he ends up compromising. See, it's compromising more than you should. I'll work seven years. It would only have to be two, but I'll do seven because if I can just get this one, that'll finally make me feel valuable. I'm telling you, when you believe wrongly that marriage is the answer, you compromise more than you should. Second, when you believe marriage is the answer, you tend to become very demanding. It's exactly what Jacob did. Look at verse 21. He works his seven years, which is amazing. It says, Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to lie with her. Like, I did my part, so now she's going to do hers. I mean, do you see how shallow this is? And by the way, in the original Hebrew, I'm just being honest here, this is not polite. This is not honorable. This is not tender. It's actually a gentle translation. What Jacob says here is dishonoring to the dad and the daughter. Give her to me. I did my part. Now she's going to do hers. And frankly, that happens in so, so many marriages. Rather than being a covenant where we lay down our lives, the marriage erodes into a contract, right? You know, I deliver this, therefore you deliver that. And as soon as that happens, our expectations of each other rise. They go through the roof. And you will end up dissatisfied because there's no way that other person can live up to all those expectations. No way. And this happens in any number of ways in a marriage. You know, sex quite often is, is a common problem. You know, I'm doing this, so baby, you're going to do this for me. And, well, I'm going to withhold that. And on and on and on it goes. Or maybe for some of you guys, you've got a demanding wife and you moved to a new city. She didn't want to move there. Right? You moved there for the job to make more money. And she says, well, now that you're making your money, I need you to buy stuff for me. I need to get that house, whatever it may be. Or it could be the lady's very nitpicky, like you never you don't, you aren't, why don't you? And some of you are elbowing each other. Cut it out right now, okay? <laughs> Not legal. Do that on the drive home. But That way, at least I'm not in the picture. Now, let me say a word here because sometimes the, the wife is demanding, but her expectations are absolutely realistic, right? The guy's not stepping up. We're going to talk some about that next week. Right, these are proper, good expectations. But, but then sometimes for the ladies, they don't communicate those. They just expect men to somehow pick up on that. And ladies, can I just tell you, if you don't tell us, we won't know, okay? And even if you say it very slowly, we may miss it because we're guys. Let me turn the tables. <laughs> can guys be demanding? Oh, absolutely. Man, I know so many working moms and they just work, 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 work. They're exhausted. And so she comes home from work, and he comes home from work and says, where's my dinner? And she's like, where's my dinner, right? And the guy's just so demanding. Or what's worse than that is if you're a stay-at-home mom with kids, and the guy walks through the door and says, hey, must be nice to just sit around the house all day doing nothing, huh? Yeah, and the lady's like, I'm going to kill you in the name of Jesus right now. 
He's like, draw me my bath. Give me my grapes. Yeah. Obviously, I'm exaggerating, okay? I'm exaggerating, but if we're honest, if we're honest in marriages, even good marriages, we can tend to think this way, can't we? I did this for you, so now you do this for me. But if you really believe that your spouse is the one to meet all of your needs, first, you're going to compromise more than you should. Second, you're going to be demanding. And third, when you believe marriage is the answer, you will always end up dissatisfied. Always. I mean, some people go into marriage with these expectations. There's, there's like no way any one person could ever meet them all, which is exactly what's going on in this story. Let me catch you up to speed here. Jacob works seven years for Rachel, and then they go to have the wedding. Well, at this point in time, Uncle Laban, he's sitting there going, I've got a problem. You know what his problem was? His oldest daughter, Leah, was not married yet. And it was customary in that culture to marry off the older daughter first, but Jacob wants the younger one. So that's going to throw everything off. She's not as attractive. Laban needs to get her married. Well, you may not know this, but the wedding feasts of that day, they were elaborate ceremonies, seven-day parties with plenty of alcohol. And so chances were better than average that Jacob would be celebrating. He would have a few too many and Laban is looking at this strategically going, okay, he he could be out there. He could be wasted, and he won't know what I'm doing. And so he takes this giant bridal veil, puts it over his older, less attractive daughter, and then he puts a full-length dress on her and sends her in. says, okay, you go into that marriage chamber, you kind of seal the deal, and then you'll be his. You'll be married to him. And she does. Here's how the story reads in verse 23. But when evening came... He, that would be Laban, took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. When morning came, there was Leah. (laughs) And everybody say, huh? (laughs) Huh? And that's exactly (laughs) what Jacob was saying. Like, whoa, I wasn't expecting this. And he freaks. Says, Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? (laughs) I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Basically, he's going, this isn't fair. This is not fair. Well, here's the bottom line. This is going to happen anytime you think someone else can meet all of your needs. That's not fair. When you believe that marriage is the answer, when you believe that wrongly, you're going to think that you've gone to bed with Rachel and you're going to wake up with Leah every time. Yeah, dead serious. When you think someone else is going to meet all those needs, once you wake up, you're going to go, huh? Because no one person can do that. Now, here's what's interesting to me. It's fascinating to me in this story. Do you realize that Leah is actually doing the exact same thing? I mean, she's thinking, well, he's, you know, stable. I'm older. And if I go in and give him my body, maybe then he'll love me. Like once he gets to know me, then maybe he'll love me. Now, she's doing the same thing that so many women She purposely goes in and deceives him, knowing she's sleeping with a guy who doesn't want her. But her story is so many people's story, and then she tries over and over again, one thing after another, says, if I just do this, then maybe he'll love me. Watch how the story unfolds here in verses 31 to 32. These are some of the saddest verses in the Bible, certainly the saddest in this story. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. And then check this out. 
She says, surely my husband will love me now. Now, those words kind of break my heart. Surely he'll love me now. Surely she'll love me now. If I give him children, our marriage can work. If I make more money and buy her the stuff she wants, if, if I have this surgery, then he'll be attracted to me. If I just do whatever, surely he'll love me. Surely she'll love me. Now, I want to pause for a moment and ask a question. What's missing in this whole story? Like from the start up to now, what is missing? Well, there's no evidence of prayer. There's no evidence of anyone seeking God, no evidence of faith, any spiritual connection. As far as we can see here, it's all about, here's what I want you to do for me over and over again. See, they were searching for the one. The problem is they were searching for the wrong one. Now, there's a driving thought in our culture that we've been taught from the day we were born. And it goes like this, to be fulfilled in life, you have to find the one, Mr. Right, Mrs. Right. If we can meet and marry the one, then we'll be happy. And so boy meets girl, and it's like, oh, man, maybe this is the one. I mean, he's cute, or, or I love her personality. Maybe she's the one. But I would say the better thing to say when you meet a potential marriage partner would be, wow, when we get together, there's like this spiritual dynamic. I mean, she's a follower of Jesus like I am, and there's this connection, this intimate connection with God. You know, maybe we should say, I don't know, but it should be something along the lines of, you know, I'm not sure here, but I may have just met the two. I may have just met the number two. Because to really be fulfilled in life, you need to remember God needs to be your number one. And your spouse should be your number two. To really be fulfilled in life, you have to find the one. But that one is God. Isn't that what Jesus said? Jesus said the greatest commandment is to make God you're one. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbors yourself. If you want a marriage the way God wants it to happen, you've got to put him in that one spot. And I'm telling you, that's a choice we all have to make because you can be a Christian and not put God in that number one spot. Now, <clears throat> admittedly, this story is really complex, and I've left out a whole part for the sake of time, about another seven years, and working for Rachel and marrying her. But I want to spend just a second here at the end, focusing on the end of Leah's story because we've been tracking with her. Leah goes on, and Leah had three sons. And each time she's thinking, this one, this one right here will make Jacob love me. This time it'll happen. But it doesn't. And then she had a fourth son, and this time is different. Genesis 29, 35 says she conceived again, <laughs> And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this is going to be different, this time I will praise the Lord. Previous three times I didn't do that, but this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, then she stopped having children. This time I will praise the Lord. So what's so amazing about this son Judah? Well, here's the deal. It is Leah the older, less attractive one, not Rachel, the young, beautiful one, who would be the mother of Judah, through whom centuries later, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, would one day be born. Proving again in Scripture that God can start with something that didn't start out right, that started out wrong, and bring about one of the most incredible, beautiful miracles in the history of the world. And I need you to hear this. If your marriage didn't start right, or if it's not right today, if there are two seeking one, anything is possible. 
We say that around here all the time. With God, anything is possible. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that even in the dysfunctional marriages of Scripture, and there are many, in fact, there are no perfect marriages, not in this world. There are things that we can learn. And God, the lessons here are abundant. Just remind us that we cannot look at marriage as being the answer. We cannot expect our spouse to meet all of our needs. And when we begin to do that, when we begin to go down that road, inevitably we'll compromise, we'll become demanding, and ultimately we'll be dissatisfied. So God, I pray that we would learn that you are the one. If we're going to find the one, it's going to be you. And we need to put you in that number one spot and, and put our spouse in the number two spot. So God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that we would take these principles, these lessons that we've learned today and and apply them to our lives. Whether we're single or married, there's so many things here that we can learn. And so God, by your Holy Spirit, we know all things are possible. And and I pray for marriages here. Maybe maybe they're marriages that are struggling, God, and and they need to come back to these truths and and put you in that number one spot and, and no longer just expect the spouse to meet all the needs and and get healing and restoration. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time just to open your word and to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so next week, we are going to look at one of the most dysfunctional marriages in the entire Bible. So if you're feeling bad about your marriage, come back next week. You'll feel much better, all right? Have a good one.